Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to the Financial Times World Weekly. I'm Daniel Dombey. Donald Trump is making a difference on trade. It's becoming ever harder to gainsay that the US president is really making waves in the world of commerce when one looks at the events of last week. He signed a deal with Korea, opened talks with Japan, and most importantly of all, concluded a replacement deal to the often attacked North American Free Trade Agreement with Canada and Mexico. This follows up on a promise that Mr Trump has long made both in office and on the campaign trail. But what difference does Trump really make? What does it mean politically? What does it mean to North American trade? And what does it mean to the bigger, broader picture about whether the world is headed down a more protectionist road? I'm joined by Alan Beatty, the FT's uh, thinker in residence at its Brussels bureau, and by James Politi, our world trade editor in the Washington bureau. James, can you just tell us what was the backdrop to this deal? Why did a deal have to be struck? Why was it dramatic? It was dramatic because there was a deadline of Sunday night to allow an agreement to be sent to Congress that would have allowed the agreement to be signed by the outgoing Mexican president. The new Mexican president didn't want to tie his hands to this NAFTA deal. And so they were facing a deadline of Sunday night to get the deal done. The US and Mexico had already agreed on some terms, but Canada wasn't in yet. And so um, in order to get Canada in on time, there were frantic negotiations with the Canadians. And they had stalled for weeks and weeks. But finally, they came together at the last minute. And uh, the U.S. made some pretty uh, important concessions, which the Canadians greeted with a certain amount of disbelief between Friday and Saturday. And that paved the way for, for a deal to be done. Of course, we know the midterm elections are a month away. This helped Trump uh, have a positive story amid all the uh, struggles he's having with a Supreme Court nominee. And so it kind of finally came together um, at the very last minute. And we have a renegotiated NAFTA deal, which is now called the U.S.-Mexico-Canada Agreement, and it's headed to Congress, where um, a a new battle for ratification uh, awaits us. And Alan, um, James has told us about what didn't happen. We didn't miss a deadline. They didn't go ahead with a bilateral agreement that effectively could have excluded Canada from the NAFTA benefits that it has enjoyed for the last 25 years or more. But what difference actually does this make? What did happen. I remember being in Mexico, I'm afraid, 25 years ago when NAFTA was approved and implemented. And that really changed that country in terms of how it organised its production, in terms of its relations with the US. How much difference is this going to make compared to that? Well, it's considerably less dramatic than that. I I think really it's a sort of tweaking around the edges. And as James says, um, Canada did, um, I think, quite a good damage limitation job in keeping the changes to things that wouldn't make an enormous difference because most of what was proposed was negative. The big things that the US were after were to do with cars. One of the effects of NAFTA has been to build up these very efficient just-in-time supply chains between Mexico, Canada and the US. The US doesn't really like this, or the Trump administration doesn't really like the way this has turned out because it wants more of the production inside the US. So it's changed the rules, meaning that countries like Mexico 
can't buy in as many inputs from abroad or from outside NAFTA. Um, and it's also brought in rules saying a certain amount of, of the value added of cars has to be added in, in factories with high wages, which, of course, means it's pushed towards the US. It also introduced rules saying that it reserved the right to hit cars from um, Mexico and Canada with very high punitive tariffs up to a certain quota. But in reality, you see, Mexico and, and Canada have done some reasonably good negotiating, certainly Canada, and those quotas are actually quite high so they're unlikely to bite. And Canada and, um, and certainly Mexico are pretty confident that the changes in the rules of origin of imports won't make a huge difference either. And now another key demand of the US was to do with the Canadian dairy market. Um, the Canadian dairy has a very complicated system of protection for its farmers, including high import tariffs and quotas and high internal prices and so forth. And that's long been targeted. But in the end, they got access to about 3.5% of the Canadian dairy market. It's not really going to make a huge difference. And Canada also resisted the US attempt to take away one of the key things that Canada has always liked, in fact, which it very nearly killed the original NAFTA deal over, which is a special court which enables it to take the US to dispute settlement if, if the US keeps blocking Canadian exports, particularly of things like lumber. So in the end, you know, it was nothing like as, as bad as many people feared. Um, I think there was a fairly determined resistance from the Canadian side, certainly. And it's enabled Donald Trump, obviously, to trumpet this enormous change. And the name change, I think, was very symbolic. But in terms of what difference it's actually going to make to the economies on the ground, I think it's fairly minimal. So if it is less than meets the eye, um, James, tell us about how this deal plays a role within Trump's broader trade agenda. After all, he has just signed this deal with Korea, which others say is similarly minimal. He's opening talks with Japan. There's this kind of unsteady armistice with the Europeans, but he's really training his guns on trade with China. What part does this play in that broader context? Yeah, so a, a few months ago, there was a sense that um, Trump was attacking everybody on trade. He was taking on China, he was putting steel and aluminium tariffs on strategic allies like Canada, Mexico, the EU. He was threatening them with car tariffs and all the rest. Now, there's a sense that, uh, that the Trump administration is, um, is heading to a, towards a truce with its allies, um, it's an it's an uneasy truce in many ways, um, but there's clearly a sort of friendlier relations sort of afoot while he's escalating his trade fight with China. So it looks like the Trump administration has realized that if it wants to be successful in its primary goal, which is essentially from an economic policy point of view, disentangling uh, the U.S. economy from its Chinese supply chains, uh, then um, it's very important for it to have some allies on its side. Um, I'm not sure that last-minute NAFTA deal, the opening of some uneasy trade talks with the EU and Japan are sufficient to create that sort of coalition of the willing that will really tighten the screws on the Chinese. But that clearly seems to be one of the goals of the Trump administration. From an economic sort of policy point of view, looking at the NAFTA deal itself, I mean, clearly the car provisions reflect what the Trump administration has believed all along, which is that there are too many cars coming in from Mexico and often using Chinese parts and parts from other parts of the world. And so the tightening of the rules of origin and the wage provisions clearly reflect that point of view. Of course, it doesn't affect all car manufacturers. 
It only affects some car manufacturers. You can sort of argue about the impact. But that's the provision which most embodies the Trump trade philosophy. What doesn't really embody the Trump trade philosophy is a lot of the other stuff in the deal. Essentially, NAFTA continues as it was with some some minor upgrades, actually, on issues like uh, intellectual property and digital trade, and which are very much in the sort of in the tradition of of U.S. trade policy and and were actually even mostly in the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which Trump ditched on his first day in office. So I think symbolically, the administration is trying to push this as a big, big change and a big, big victory. But where Trump really comes out in the substance is really only on the car sector. And very briefly, Alan, is there one more big fight at the World Trade Organization? Because this is also a big bugbear of, uh, of the Trump administration, it seems. So um, when you talk about alliances and alliances with the EU and Japan, what the EU and Japan have been doing, and particularly this was led by Japan, who have been very creative and very determined on the world trade circuit in the last few years, the EU and Japan are sort of trying to reorient the US and push it down the multilateral route and use the WTO as the agency to go after China. Now, the problem with that is that, one, the WTO rule book has a lot of gaps in it when you're going, to, going after the kind of thing that China does a lot of, namely subsidies and forced technology transfer and so forth. The second problem is that the Trump administration really dislikes the WTO. And it's actually not really the negotiating function, you know, the, the making of the rules that it really dislikes. What it dislikes is the other bit, which is the court that interprets existing rules. The US has long disliked this because it keeps ruling that uh, a part of the US trade remedy is anti-dumping and anti-subsidy duties that it uses to keep out imports that it thinks are unfairly priced. Um, it keeps ruling that some of those are illegal under WTO law. Um, in particular, Robert Lighthizer, who's the US trade representative, was for a long time a lawyer uh, for the steel industry, and it's the steel industry in particular in the US which really dislikes this. Um, so in order to use the WTO as a, as a vehicle to go after China, in order to persuade the US to use the WTO rather than doing what at the moment it's doing, which is battering China with these bilateral tariffs, what you have to do first is persuade the US that, first of all, you know, the WTO is not an evil institution whose only job is to leave the US defenseless against unfair imports. And second, you have to convince the US that it can be reformed enough, you know, and sharpened enough into a useful weapon to go after China. Both of those are going to take a long time. I think there's a lot of inbuilt prejudice within the US against the WTO. And to be fair, it is hard to see how the the WTO can be used very effectively against the great panoply of interventions that China uses, the forced technology transfer, the subsidies, the excessive industrial capacity, the state-owned enterprises, the subsidised financing and so forth. It's difficult to see how, how it can be very quickly and effectively turned into a weapon to go after those. So that's going to be a much longer process and a much harder process for the EU and Japan than simply negotiating Trump to a sort of short-term truce by promising to cooperate down the line. Right, so it's not just a question of house training Donald Trump, it's actually a case of um, him having a fundamental, uh, some substance in his arguments about the in- insufficiencies of the WTO. That's right, and it's not just Trump either, as I say, it's, this is a long-standing complaint of, of the US, and even the Obama administration um, was 
refused to reappoint some of the judges to the WTO's dispute settlement process because they didn't like the way they were ruling. Trump, of course, has taken that a stage further and refuses to appoint any judge at all. But, you know, this is a long-standing complaint that, that if you like, Donald Trump has, has massively amplified. And so while we talk about this issue about channeling Donald Trump's anger about trade, James, tell us about the political prospects uh, that Trump now faces, both in terms of whether this really is going to be a big win on the campaign trail as he faces these very challenging midterm elections, and what the prospects are of this USMCA deal going through what may be, at least in part, a Democratic Congress next year. Well, you know, one of the reasons why the US did make some late concessions is because Trump realized that he needed to show the American electorate that he had fulfilled one of his main campaign promises ahead of midterm elections, which are looking quite difficult for the Republicans. So there's clearly a political um, imperative there for the administration. Um, In terms of the political prospects of the deal itself, they are still quite uncertain. If if the U.S. had gone, gone along by itself with Mexico and without Canada, that agreement would have been pretty much dead on arrival in Congress. The Republicans and business people and the Democrats that all said you need to get Canada on board. So now they've got Canada on board. The prospects of the deal look a lot better. Um, Certainly, if the Republicans maintain control of both the House and the Senate, I think this agreement will probably sail through. However, it does look like the Democrats could take control of the House. And in that case, things could look a little shaky and we could see much more turbulence. We've already had a few Democrats out there saying they don't like the deal, it doesn't go far enough. Trade votes are always difficult. The original NAFTA deal was tough to get through, it was a big fight. Getting China into the WTO was also a big fight. And in a previous instance, when the George Bush administration Uh, George W. Bush administration had signed an agreement with Colombia, and they tried to get it through a Democratic Congress. There were delays and renegotiations, and it was uh, was quite a hairy process. Certainly, there are a few things that are arguing in favor of the deal, even with Democrats in control. One is that the risks of a collapse of the agreement are actually quite high. I think that, you know, Trump would certainly blame Democrats in Congress in a huge way if things were to fall apart. And that could prove to be quite a big political liability for the Democrats. And I'm not sure that they want to have that fight immediately after taking control of Congress if they if they do. And um, Trump could wield a very huge weapon. I mean, he could threaten to pull the US out of the old NAFTA if Congress doesn't approve the new NAFTA. And if he does that, then we'd be back to square one, which is the possibility that trade is uh, completely unraveled across North America. Again, that fear factor could weigh quite heavily. It's not clear that the Democrats want to have that fight. And it's not clear that any possible Democratic candidates for the presidency in 2020 will want to make this their battle cry. And, you know, as soon as the midterms are over, all the focus is going to turn towards who is going to be a candidate for the Democratic presidential primaries heading into the 2020 election. That's the political context there. I think the lesson is that the deal is done, but it's not yet complete. There could still be drama ahead, and uh, there, there might be another chapter to be written here. So... Let's let's wait and see. And um, very, uh, very briefly, Alan, people have talked again, and you hear this from the IMF, you hear it from many central banks like the ECB. The big concern 
on the global economic landscape, the big cloud on the horizon is this fear of protectionism and of trade wars. That's the real worry they have about the Trump effect. After this deal, is the world economy less at risk of an outburst of protectionism? I think a little less at risk, yes. Not so much because of the the substance of the deal, but if you like the opposite, the fact that uh, Trump was prepared to make a deal that doesn't have that much substance in it. To echo what James said, if that means he's happy with reasonably symbolic deals with people who are traditionally his allies, i.e. You know, Mexico and Canada, and indeed, let's say, the EU and Japan and so forth and, and, and Korea, and he's prepared purely to uh, direct his wrath against China. Now, the US-China relationship is a huge one, and of course, that's easily enough to destabilise the world economy. But it does appear to be qualitatively different from what we might have feared a few months ago, which was Trump versus the world. Trump versus the world. That brings to an end uh, James Belitti versus Alan Beatty. Thank you both very much, and until next week.